0: This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to the hub. Had your head under a rock you're pretty clear that there's a lot of controversy right now about the value of racial equity about the value of things like diversity equity and inclusion whenever you hear that phrase depending on what circle you're in it might be greeted with oh that's exactly what we need right now or it might be greeted with accusations of being woke And again on this station we don't understand why one would ever want to walk through life being asleep but that's besides the point the fact of the matter is we have a lot of controversy right now around the value uh, that diversity equity and inclusion efforts provide particularly as they really came to the fore in the aftermath of America's quote-unquote racial awakening. And y'all know I'm putting that fully in air quotes uh, because it it deserves to be in air quotes. Uh, Joining me right now is our guest for this moment, and she's going to help us understand exactly what's going on when it comes to the value of equity and inclusion, the value of diversity, and not just in terms of how it makes us feel inside, and it it does make us feel good when we're surrounded by folks who are uh, willing to see us for our humanity and not be blocked by Uh, their inability to get over racial and other forms of diversity. Uh, But she's also someone who's doing this work professionally. And so Carrie and Suarez, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Uh, You're the director of Equity in the Center, a new initiative launched through uh, ProInspire and funded by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Kellogg Foundation, Ford Foundation, Kresge Foundation, and the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. And this is a, a program or an effort that addresses a gap in philanthropic and nonprofit organizations, current diversity, equity, and inclusion practices practices. Ms. Suarez, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you much. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I appreciate the invitation. Um, yes. It's a pleasure to be here. Equity in the Center um, is now an independent 501c3. We spun out of uh, ProInspire wow. in October of 2020. So, Congratulations. To your point about the quote-unquote awakening that happened in 2020, um, our work has evolved, aligned to that surge in interest following unfortunately the murder of George Floyd.
0: Yes. Let, let's talk about equity in the center. How did this initiative, well now organization, uh, how did this get started? What was the impetus? And I, then I want to move into a real conversation about the values that I see for diversity, equity and inclusion. I think the values that you see and the moment that we're in where that those values are being challenged on a variety of levels. Let's Start with equity in the center. Uh, talk with us about your organization.
1: Sure. So thank you. It began as a project, as you were describing, of ProInspire that was capitalized by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. A program officer there, Ashley Stewart, uh, brought together a number of grantees in what was called the Talent Portfolios or the Talent Pipelines Portfolio back in 2015 to essentially workshop the reasons behind the lack of diversity at the highest levels of the social sector. So why we as people of color don't show up as CEOs, board chairs, and so on. They spent about nine months together thinking about that and wrote together a white paper that was the case for equity in the center. So a field-wide initiative Initiative that would support social sector organizations, nonprofits, and philanthropic institutions in seeking or attaining greater diversity at the highest levels. Over time, once we were capitalized and began doing our research, we reframed that focus to be explicitly on dismantling structural racism in the social sector because the lack of diversity at the highest levels of the social sector, just like anywhere else in the social sector or anywhere else in society. is not the challenge in and of itself, it's a symptom of the root cause, which is structural racism. So we reframed our work to talk about how we can work with leaders and organizations to change organizational culture uh, to dismantle the extent to which it replicates patterns of institutional racism that drive a lack of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And so that led to our race equity cycle framework, which lays out how organizations make the transition from awake to woke to work. Um, And we focus really explicitly on organizational transformation to drive race equity. Um, And the difference, I would say, between transformation and transactional or sorry, transformational work on race equity versus a transactional focus on DEI is that checking the box and focusing solely on representation is not going to yield the depth of organizational change that will drive inclusion and then over time, the mitigation of race and other identity-based disparities. So there's a conflation of diversity and equity, just having more people of diverse backgrounds, race and other identities, as you were saying, is not sufficient to create inclusion, which is valuing those individuals of diverse backgrounds as equal members of the organization and society broadly. And inclusion is not sufficient to yield measurable equity, which would be the absence of identity. In this case, we're talking about race-based disparities in outcomes. And inside of an organization that's looking at composition, compensation, staff engagement, retention, uh, investment of professional development dollars, distribution of individuals from the most senior level, Of the organization down to the most junior level um so it's the absence of those race-based disparities and outcomes as well as the removal of structural barriers to the attainment of inclusion and equity over time
0: so let's break this down a bit because i want to make sure that by the end of this conversation our audience is clear that there is inherent value, right? And, and that we have to say that there is value in diversity because right now that's being questioned, right? Right now we have people who are saying, is, va- is diversity really a value? This was one of the, the that diverse classrooms, for example, where a value was one of the driving pushes behind affirmative action, uh, behind integration that there is value in having diverse populations learning together. We can quibble about that, but that was certainly one of the, the goals or, or one of the outcomes that folks were striving for. And now we're in a point where there's a question about whether or not that value even has any mon- whether or not diversity has any monetary value, whether it has any intrinsic value whatsoever. And of course those questions are coming from folks who have a p- particular political ideation, but I want to start with uh, breaking this down a little bit you just gave us a lot and let's talk about this race equity cycle framework you mentioned the awake to woke to work let's break that down a bit Uh, a lot of buzzwords in there but I know that they have real substantive meaning based on how you all are employing them take us through that cycle for let's say an organization that is just at the beginning of its efforts to diversify and maybe not even really committed to it but just know that there's they should because there's you know there's dissension among the ranks for example so they have to do with the deal with this issue, but they're perhaps not necessarily fully open-armed about it. How would you take an organization like that through the race equity cycle framework?
1: Sure. So an organization that you're like, you're describing would be what we call AWAKE. And the the terms AWAKE, WOKE, and WORK were our effort to reframe diversity, inclusion, and equity, mm. so that folks can focus on the component concepts of the acronym DEI and actually understand them as a progression, a developmental continuum, as opposed to an acronym that's just used to check the box in place of the word diversity. Mm. So at the AWAKE stage, organizations are focused focused on diversity, literal representation. They are focused on counting the number of individuals who are, for example, black or brown or who identify as Latin or Hispanic. And they have an explicit focus on recruiting diverse individuals. They often will be, as you were describing, paying lip service to diversity because they know they should, or there is dissent within the ranks. Um, More folks of color or the folks of color who are present, for example, maybe pushing for more diversity. And looking at the past 20 years, as you were saying, um, there has been an intentional focus on increasing diversity across sectors. And so even the most basic of organizations that isn't sophisticated on this issue at least has some language around attempting to recruit diverse individuals or a diversity statement, for example, that's part of their job description or part of their handbook. But essentially, that's where the work begins and ends. So yeah. we're counting who works here. We're not considering the lived experiences of people of diverse backgrounds, but specifically the experiences of people of color in broader society or inside of the organization once we make them a job offer. Um, And in organizations that are at the awake stage, it is very common for there to be a disparity in the rates of retention between folks who identify as folks of color and those who identify as white. Mm -hmm. So one of the characteristics of being a wake stage, is that there will be a higher turnover rate among staff of color. But what the organization will not do is staff stop to consider why that disparity exists. So yeah. what is it about our organization that makes folks leave in 12 to 18 months, whereas folks who identify as white tend to stay longer, or even honestly within the community of people of color, which as you know, is vast and includes multiple races, there are often disparities across Uh, communities of color within an organization. Um, So you might have, for example, Black folks turning over at a higher rate um, than folks who identify as Asian um, Mm -hmm. or or Latin, Latinx. So just trying to get more diverse individuals when the folks we have on staff leave, but they're focused on assimilation. So if you're a person of color who got a job at a majority uh, white organization, you would have to render yourself or comport yourself as sufficiently professional so as to fit in. And the organization is aware of that. They know they have a white dominant organization, predominantly white folks, a culture that is shaped predominantly by white folks. So if you're a person of color, you have to fit in to that box. And my back of the envelope description of white dominant culture aligns to professionalism. So you have to speak, dress, show up in such a way As to be offered and retain a job for at least as long as uh, you want to stay there, for example, I I want to pause you you there
0: I just want to pause you there just a second and remind the audience that a few months ago we actually had on an attorney, Leah Goodridge, who's written a phenomenal piece on this very, on this very point: race uh, professionalism as a racial construct. So showing up professionally means showing up in an assimilated space, a way and in a manner that basically leaves your culture at the door and forces you to essentially operate in that space as just a fraction of who you really are, so that you can squeeze into this very limited and rigid. Boxes that define what professionalism is in these contexts. And I think uh, that article, coupled with what you just said, that's, that's a master reading right there. It's a pairing of reading with the information that you just shared with us because that really does then mean that I can't show up fully as my black self. I have to show up as myself with the mask. I have to voice, I may have to code switch. I'm imagining folks who are in these types of circumstances. I may have to uh, I be aware of racial inequities happening in the place workplace, but I'm not really empowered to address them in any meaningful way. And it's easier for me to just leave. Right? than it is to really have to navigate and try to reframe what's happening in this environment. So I want to recommend for the audience that reading in light of what you just said, because a lot of us are in these spaces where we're, there's a constant turnover and we, we're we seeing the lip service, but there is nothing substantive in those institutions that would make us feel like we're actually valued for who we are beyond the boxes that those institutions can check once they have given us the offer letter. A- am I reading this portion of the uh, awake, woke, work cycle? Yes. Effect- Okay. All right. So yes. That's, yes that's,
1: that's how we would characterize the awake, the awake stage. Okay. Um, and this dynamic is also true, can also be true at organizations that are predominantly made up of folks of color. Because the way structural racism operates, the way white supremacy operates, is that we are all part of this system. And so within a system of white supremacy, people of color who are more assimilated, who are more proximate to whiteness, either in terms of their education or their economic status, um, are advanced professionally. And so I just wanted to point that out because some people, what I just said can land for some people as applying only to institutions that have uh, predominantly white folks, but our research found that it applies to both. And the reason for that is that people who are oppressed by a system are by design complicit in perpetuating the system. So white supremacy is about more than white people. Per se, it's about the valuation of white people and white bodies and white ideas above the bodies, the ideas of all culture of all other people. And we are as a result of white supremacy in the way oppression operates, made complicit such that we can be part of perpetuating these norms and standards of professionalism on other Black people and other folks of color when we're in position of positions of power. And mm-hmm. as I look back on my career, I have participated in that. Um, and the way I ended up doing this work, I often say is as I developed a deepening understanding of my own privilege and my complicity in a system of white supremacy, particularly in professional spaces.
0: Would this apply, and and that latter point, I'm so glad you said that, because we oftentimes are real good at pointing the finger externally, but it's a lot more difficult to do some internal evaluation. For example, if I am the director of a, an academic program at say an HBCU, and I believe that in order to be professional, one must straighten one's hair. One cannot wear uh, hairstyles that are not straightened to the workplace because that is not professional. So whether it's a, a braids, a twists, an afro, anything that is not uh, within the the stereotypical standard of beauty uh, that says straight hair is professional hair. If I, as a black uh, professor or uh, the director of a program at an HBCU, am upholding that type of beauty standard for my students, for example, would that be... Uh, fitting within this? I'm trying to give a concrete example that would. would Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you that if we're talking about the race equity cycle, that behavior or action would be characteristic of what we call the awake stage. And what you're describing, I'll say is a reflection of two things. One is a reflection of structural racism and how it manifests. We have had to do certain things, change our appearance, change the way we speak in order to survive. Um, In America, within a system of white supremacy. So there was a time where we had to do those things just to get a job um, or to keep a job. And I think to a certain extent, that's true today, depending upon where you work. And there is a way to explain the way structural racism manifests in institutions and in society and how historically Black folks, for example, have had to be two or three times better just to get in the door. Um, There's a way to explain the system and how professionalism operates within institutions without crushing an individual spirit and making them feel less than. Mm. So this comes up a lot when I talk to organizations and folks will say, well, I need to give so-and-so advice on how to get a job. Give them advice within the context of the structure. Describe the structure. It is not your innate deficiency. Um, That means to straighten your hair or change the way that you speak or change your nails. Um, It's white supremacy and how it values those aspects of Black culture specifically. So I think when you talk to young people about anti-Blackness and how it manifests in a professional spaces and the things that we have had to do to survive, to stay alive, number one, to to get a job and keep a job and having an explicit conversation about the choices they may have to make if they choose to work in certain spaces. Um, And there's now a continuum of workspaces available. So yes to what you said, that is true in many spaces um, and in many homes and in many families. That's how a lot of, I know I was raised to believe I had to dress and speak a certain way to get a job and keep a job. but mm-hmm. now, you know, just talk to folks about the broader system. It's important to talk about the system, structural oppression. We are not inherently deficient as a people, mm-hmm. but if you believe the lies that white supremacy tells us, we'll believe that we're deficient, um, that. as opposed to putting on a mask or wearing a costume, so to speak, mm-hmm. to assimilate and not internalizing inferiority, which is what has, which is what happens okay. within a, a system of structural racism I'm glad Um, you said mm -hmm. families
0: as well because I was just going to look at give a side eye to Hampton University I never miss an opportunity to to side eye their MBA program which as Mm -hmm. I know still requires that their MBA students not be allowed to wear their hair in natural way because it doesn't look professional it's not in keeping with corporate culture so if if you're saying that if they are saying it's not your hair that's the problem yeah (laughs) it's been a thing for me since 2006 (laughs) if you're saying it's not your it's not us that's the problem but we have to make sure our students know this is what you're going to navigate so if it's important for you to wear you're here in a particular way you're going to have to be aware that not every corporate entity is going to allow you to do that and you're going to have to determine where you would apply what choices and and decisions you might make in response to that but i'm glad you also reminded us it's not just at an HBC, it's not just at schools it's also in family and the messages that we are communicating to the young people that we're raising so so thank you for broadening even my understanding of that and so that's the awake segment and then the work segment is it work next and then woke which comes after awake Woke, woke, woke is next. Okay,
1: and woke. We wrote this paper in 2018, so as you'll remember, woke had a popular meaning then, and we knew that when we named this stage woke, and we had a whole conversation about whether or not that was a good idea, and we decided to go with it because we want folks to wake up, and so woke was an accurate description. But now, you know, with the fox, the with the partisan rhetoric and the new definition of woke we constantly sort of have to push back against that. But woke within the context of our framework is essentially the second stage and woke is how we reframed inclusion. So at the woke stage, an organization is seeking to move beyond simply representation. An important characteristic of the organization at this stage is that they name the existence of structural racism and of white supremacy. Wow. And they explicitly express a desire to dismantle those things um, as replicated within their institutional culture. Another thing that's important to say about the woke stage is that organizations begin to name or name explicitly that it is not the responsibility of people of color employed there to diversify the institution, to educate their colleagues on race and racism, and to do the work of fixing race problems or race issues within the organization. And at the awake stage, that is often the explicit language. So if we have some folks of color here, you all know about race and racism. So help us to diversify the place, help us to do this work. At the woke stage, an organization is explicitly moving away from that, uh, talking about how doing that in the past is a reflection of how racism manifests inside of an organization Mm. and beginning to cultivate allyship. So it's not the responsibility of individuals who are oppressed by a system to dismantle it. That's sort of fundamentally illogical. It's the responsibility of the individuals who are preferenced by a system to dismantle it in solidarity with those who are oppressed by it. So in this case, in solidarity with people of color. So organizations will start to talk explicitly about allyship, the role of white folks within a system of white supremacy to dismantle. Um, institutional racism and and structural racism in broader society. You'll see Mm -hmm. organizations start to do things like affinity groups or um, a lot of for-profits call those employee resource groups. What I will say is that employee resource groups have been very commonly used as a strategy to drive inclusion and belonging. So I have a place here As a Black employee, as an Indigenous employee, as a queer identifying or disabled employee, what employee resource groups or affinity groups, as we tend to call them in our work, do not generally do is contribute to dismantling oppression, Mm. structural racism, institutional racism within the institution. And so that's the difference between inclusion and transforming an organization to mitigate race-based disparities. So if it's just a place for us to get together and have lunch and support one another, that is a valuable space. That type of space does not yield equity within organizations. And you can look at the data sort of across, not just the nonprofit sector, but the for-profit sector to demonstrate, for example, that people of color are not represented at the highest level of the sector in proportion with our representation in society. Mm. So for the nonprofit sector, you could look at a report from the Movement Project, McKinsey and other consulting firms have done reports on the the for-profit sector. So when you look at institutions, we are not represented in proportion um, in leadership we are not compensated in right. the same way. there are disparities right. in compensation. there are a number of reports about that when you look at staff engagement, the average institution, the average organization has disparities in the level in ga- of engagement between white identifying staff and staff of color. Mm. Um, and that's a reflection of the organization's culture. So ultimately what you're working toward is to look at those, Data points I said for in, for internal staff. So composition, who who works there, compensation, promotion, retention, investment of professional development dollars, distribution from the senior level to the junior level. And you should see a narrowing and overtime and absence of disparities in those outcomes as you are working through the woke phase to get to work. But we found organizations stay in any stage from three to five years, uh, often up to 10. Woke is the longest and the most difficult. Mm. During the woke phase, the organization is reframing Mm. all of their work, policy, practice, process, Mm. uh, culture to center equity. And so during the woke stage, you're scaffolding learning among staff and leadership. Um, But over time, the scaffolding, so to speak, sort of becomes the spine, and is wow. supported by a muscle—you know, a muscle right. system. You got to build. But the body that's the change that. that's happening. Yeah. The- the so let's,
0: let's yeah. briefly talk um, about work, so that equity
1: is centered.
0: Yeah let's briefly mm-hmm. talk about work because I, I, I'm fascinated by this conversation. I'm already, I'm, I'm reaching out to Shayla to ask her to reach out to your folks to have you come back because we're not even going to, we're just scratching the surface here and we haven't even gotten to the transformation versus transactional. And that I think is an extraordinarily important element as well. Uh, but let's let's define what the work phase of this three-part cycle looks like. And and then I got to ask you, you know, how many corporations are still thinking about this as a, as a way forward? And uh, we're seeing a lot of pushback on most of these initiatives right now. So so let's talk about what the work phase looks like. And then let's spend just a few minutes talking about how you navigate this space and do the work that you're here to do, that the center is here to do in light of all the pushback that we're receiving. So let's talk about work.
1: Sure. So at the the work phase, that's when an organization has successfully built a race equity culture. And we define that as an organi- an a culture uh, that is proactively focused on mitigating race-based disparities inside of the organization mm. and outside of the organization. So exist? at the work stage, you'll like a- <laughs> have been at this for up to two years. There are some, they do exist. We okay. found some in our research and okay. they, they, they do exist. It is possible. It's extremely hard and even institutions that were founded on principles of racial justice or gender injustice for example have challenges getting to and sustaining the work stage yeah. So all of the data that I said where the disparities would close over time when you get to the work stage those disparities should those gaps, should have been closed. And the organization is focused on sustaining a race equity culture. So that spine and the muscle system, the DNA, if you prefer that metaphor of the organization, equity is embedded in there. Mm. It is a competency that is not just cultivated and sustained, it is part of the criteria to get a job at this institution. Mm. So in order for you to work here, you need to demonstrate that you have sufficient equity competency to help the institution to sustain a race equity culture. Prior to the murder of George Floyd, sort of my most common way of describing the woke stage is that when there is a tragedy in the community. And the organization has to release a public statement because prior to the murder of George Floyd, we were in this two or three year cycle where organizations were constantly releasing statements about the murder of an unarmed black man, right. the crisis at the border, the repeal yep. of DACA. And so when an organization makes a statement about an issue of equity or justice in the community, Often what happens is they start using words that they've never used before. And this is what blew up following the murder of George Floyd. Mm. So I'm going to tweet black squares. I'm going to use words like anti-black racism, structural uh, racism, (laughs) Uh. white supremacy. Um, And I'm going to tweet and talk about my belief in the existence of these things and my support uh, for black folks. I'm going to say maybe black lives matter. The problem is that on a daily basis inside of my institution, I have never said such things. Mm. So... And organizations that's at the work stage would never do that. Um, If it's tweeting, releasing a statement, the values that it's professing to the world and on social media actually align to the values that are held at the center of the organization in practice Mm. every day. Mm. And they may not even need to to release statement because the work that they're doing speaks for itself.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and so that's the goal is that we would all get to that, that so if you,
0: place, I guess we can say if, if you got to put out a press release every time something anti-Black happens and your Black employees are in the reading the, the press release saying, well, where they do that at? Because they don't do that here. Then you're probably in. That's who you're not talking here. About. Yeah, not here. So th- I'm so glad that we have yep. a framework. And there was a lot of that. Yeah, I, yes, I, I still recall. I, I'm so glad that you all have a framework that seems to really make a lot more practical sense than do sort of amorphous phrases like diversity, equity, inclusion. It's sort of like buzzword fest. But I like this framework and I like how you were able to walk us through it. We have just a few minutes together. So again, we're going to have to have have you come back to talk about the difference between transformation versus transactional. And I think this is extraordinarily important now because we're in an era where with the fall of affirmative action pending from the Supreme Court, with uh, already court- corporations many of them hiring as few of us as they can avoid as they can with while avoiding lawsuits for for discrimination we're in a time right now where the the national embrace of the integration as a social project for the nation is in question and and so I, I guess by, my final question for you today is how are we to navigate cycles like this awake woke work uh, diversity equity whatever you want to call it in a time where Right now, we no longer have a firm legal basis to mandate that these corporations do this work and, and engage in these sorts of practices. We are now, as a nation, there's, there's a lot of question about the, the sustainability of integration as a national policy. Where does this type of work sit in this environment when, quite frankly, we don't even know if the law is going to be on our side anymore when it comes to pushing issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion?
1: Yeah, thanks. That's an excellent question. And it comes up every day because folks are really frustrated by it and not sure what to do with the people in their institution that are pushing back. So as you said, the legal case may now fall away. So, I'll talk about the moral case and then the business case. So there's the legal system and then there is what we know to be right and just Mm -hmm. in, in everyday life. And so when I work with organizations, many of them are coming at it from the more Through the moral lens, which the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, like that sort of brought into focus the, the injustice, the racial injustice that still is in our communities and in our daily life. Mm-hmm. So when folks are focused on that, I still do find that there is a moral case to be made um, and individuals respond to that. So is it fair, for example, um, the disproportionate rates at which Black men are killed by the police? I'll also mention that Indigenous men are killed at a rate higher um, than that of Black men, not coincidentally. It's because of the unique history of oppression of indigenous and Black people in this country. It's on purpose. Um, So there's the moral case, like we should do something about this. There's still a lot of institutions that are talking about that, even two years, two, three years out. From the murder of George Floyd, and so you can talk about a wake to, to work building a race equity culture within that context. Mm. There is a business case. I tend not to talk about it very much because the business case was made decades ago through a series of studies that that are that are out there. Um, the Kellogg Foundation published the business case um, for racial equity where they actually quantified the cost of inequity, of racial inequity by vertical, by social sector to American society. McKinsey has published, the consulting firm has published a number of reports that talks explicitly about the increase in profitability that corporations experience when there is diverse representation on their teams. Mm. So the business case for diversity has been made. It's out there. It's been made by very reputable institutions in the for-profit and in the nonprofit sector. The lens that I've been encouraging folks to bring to it recently is the equity lens. Despite what the far right is saying with their rhetoric, an equity approach is inclusive of everyone. Do you have a daughter? Do you want your daughter's educational or athletic outcomes in life to be comparable to that of your male identifying children? Mm. Do you have a veteran in your family? Do you have a senior citizen? Do you have someone with a disability? If you would like the outcomes for those individuals to be just as robust and healthy and safe and free as everyone else who may not identify as female, who may not have a disability, who may not be a veteran, then equity the equity framework applies to you. Wow. It is not just about people who are yeah. black or brown yeah. or queer identifying. It is about any individual in society who has an issue or a challenge that potentially mitigates their ability to live and thrive in society. Mm. So that's the framing I've been encouraging folks to use, because the, fo- the people who are pushing back, they've got daughters. They have people with mental health challenges and disabilities um, in their families. They have folks who are trying to get by on minimum wage. Yeah,
0: yeah. An
1: equity framework will support those individuals. It is not just about those of us who aren't white or straight or Mm, able-bodied.
0: It's about all of us. I really appreciate this because, again, we're going to have to be able to reiterate the moral case, the business case, because the legal case, you know, I I hate, as a racial justice attorney, I'm seeing all of the legislation, all of the precedent that people like me would rely on for voting rights and civil rights just sort of fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, there's another one, and there's another one. So the fact that there are other ways to make this case is important. In addition to the fact that, you know, I'm firmly of the perspective that as we had to do prior to integration, we are going to have to, in addition to maintaining our positions in these integrated spaces also create other opportunities and and pathways so that we are able to provide jobs, uh, meet, answer problems, and resolve issues in our community through a way that can be capitalized and through a way that can employ people. uh, Because the the opportunities are going to look very, very different, I think, going forward than they have in the most recent past. And I say only the most recent past, folks, because integration is like 58 years old. If you count from the 1964 Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act of 65 and the Fair Housing Act of 68 we got like maybe a 60 year old situation here when it comes to integration lasted longer than reconstruction uh, but we are going to be need to be much more creative in how we approach these issues and I love the way that you all are framing this I love how you're approaching this Uh, and I'm really grateful for you spending some time with us this morning because again this is where the conversation is going to have to go and y'all I know you don't like it when I say this but the signs are there, the writing is on the wall, and we have to be able to look up and see what's happening. Kay Suarez, it's been such a pleasure having you here. How can people follow you and the work of the center?
1: Thank you. So you can find Equity in the Center on the web at equityinthecenter.org. You can follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn or on Instagram at equity underscore in underscore the underscore center. That's our (laughs) our tag on uh, or handle on Instagram. Um, But yes, check out our website, download our publication, and hopefully next time we can talk more about the transactional to transformational um, distinction because you brilliantly described sort of the last 50 years of of explicit focus on affirmative action and diversity, which has yielded where we are at present. So a transactional focus simply on representation does not yield equity. Like the present 2023 is Uh something different Uh has to happen.
0: Something different has to happen. I think the devil got mad at you speaking too much truth because your voice blanked out just a little bit, but it came back because the devil does that sometimes on this show. When somebody starts talking real truth, it's like, oh, this is too much goodness. we got to shut it down. Okay, Suarez, it has been such a pleasure having you here. <laughs> Equity in the center, folks. Follow Likewise. them, research them, and get to know them because it's, this is the work that's going to really help shape the next phase that we are going to be entering. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>